You are listening to the second sermon in the series entitled, Render Unto, Finding Caesar's Place in God's World and Our Place in Caesar's, preached in October of 2008 at Hokessin Baptist Church. Today's sermon is entitled, Life. And now, Pastor John Boulay. Maybe you can identify with this. Have you ever been driving on the road, on the highway, like at night? And the road's clear, and there aren't that many cars on the road, and then you come to that area where they're doing construction. I need another table. They're doing construction, and all of a sudden, uh, the road uh, starts to narrow, and then there's the orange lights, and there's the signs, and all of a sudden you lose your shoulder. And then it goes from three lanes to two lanes and from two lanes to one lane. And then there's those occasions where the lane shifts and they put these big concrete walls up on either side of you. And there's this period where three minutes ago you were just broken out in the open. You were all by yourself and now you're kind of shooting through this concrete tunnel. Am I the only one? Are you guys? Are you tracking? I kind of got some gazes like I was the only one who ever felt that way. Well, I like it. I mean, it's fun. It's kind of exhilarating. It wakes you up. You know, when you have like a foot on either side of your side view mirror, and I feel like I'm in Battlestar Galactica or something. You know, <laughs> but it's kind of, what's, what's, what's neat is, so you're there, and, you know, you're going 55 in a 35 construction zone, and things are zooming by, and then you break out of the construction, and it's, you have your shoulders again, and you have your lanes again, and you're all back by yourself, and you can drive sloppy again, uh, and there's that freedom. Well, today's sermon's going to start in the tunnel. Um, we're going to be in a political tunnel uh, where I'm going to talk party politics. I'm going to talk uh, very close to where uh, you're very sensitive. I'm a foot from either wall, and so I pray your mercy and your grace. <laughs> Because, and I say that sincerely because the goal of this month has always been, and I said it last week, is not to make you figure out how to vote the right way, but to make you realize that the politics and the way that you and I live God's kingdom is so much bigger than this election. You simply, if you are allowing this election to burden your spirit, it is not of the Lord. God is in control. God wants us to be to so much more And even though I'm about to talk down there about the left and the right and the R word and the D word, even though I'm about to talk down there, our minds and our spirits and our souls need to be up here, wondering how does this teach us about God and how to live more fully and how to live like a Christian despite the walls on either side of us. So I pray your mercy. All right, now we're getting to it. Into the tunnel we go. So speaking of the election, this election is a little unique. It's a lot unique. It's unique in many ways. It's unique because for the first time in the history, we will either have an African-American president or a female vice president. That's unique. It's unique in the fact that one uh, candidate for president is one of the older candidates we've ever had, and one is one of the younger candidates. One's one of the most experienced. One's one of the least experienced. There's a lot of uniqueness about this election 
But the one I want to focus on this morning is the unique way in which the evangelical vote is behaving. Because something is happening this year that uh, I, in, in recent decades, haven't seen. And by the way, I was a political science major in college, so I've, I have a, an ear to the drum here. But there is something happening for the evangelical vote in America today in this election that has not happened in as real a way in past decades, at least in the past 20 years. And that's that all of a sudden, both the right and the left are competing for our vote, the evangelical vote. And what do I mean when I say evangelical? I mean the people in this room, Christians who believe the Bible, who attend church, and who earnestly try to live their faith out in their daily life. The Bible is authoritative in their life. Their church community is constructive in their life. And their Christian life shapes their politics. Last week we said that our politics figures out how we relate among people groups, but our ideology or our faith or our worldview shapes our politics. So Joe the Christian that we're talking about today... The evangelical, he believes scripture. He may not fully follow it, but when he breaks scripture, he understands that he messed up. He understands that he's subject to the authority of God, that he's not above the law, and that the scripture should shape the way he views life. That's Joe the Christian, and this year, both sides are speaking to Joe the Christian. And it hasn't always been this way. When I was a boy, back in the 70s, I know that dates me a little bit, uh, or undates me, depending on where you're looking. Uh, political lines were not drawn as, and by the way, I'm speaking in major generalities, so this may not be you, but I think you'll generally see that I'm generally right about things generally. <laughs> All right? So I, and I'm not going to make some major point here, so you can relax. Just loosen, wiggle your fingers, wiggle your toes here. Uh, in about 20 or 30 years ago in the 70s, uh, the political lines drawn did not have as much to do with our moral stances on things. By and large, you had Christians that were Democrats and Christians that were Republicans. Christians came in all shapes and sizes. And, and the, the party demarcations were not as moral as they are now. There were bigger concerns like uh, the Cold War, Soviet Union, taxation, price of gas back then. That was kind of the 70s. By the time we turn to the 80s, something begins to happen. There's things that start to surface in political life, partly out of necessity and concern of the moral fabric of our country, but you start to hear new phrases that did not exist earlier, like the Christian coalition. The Christian coalition exists. It, it professes to speak for the evangelical church, the evangelical vote, and it lives firmly and, and centered in the right. It belonged to the right. This is the first time we start to get pastors running for presidency. Speaking on primarily moral grounds is in the 80s. We start to see this happening. And at the same time, what we begin to see on the left is a conscious distancing from the evangelical movement. So on the right, there's this voice saying, we are your voice. The evangelical church fall in line behind us. And on the left, there's a feeling they're going, and we are not your voice. We look down on you. We think you're uneducated. And there was this, this split, this moral split begins to arise between the left and the right. And by the time you get to the 90s, it's generally assumed that the right has the evangelical vote 
and the left has no chance in getting it. Essentially, by the mid-90s, I keep tightening this up there. By the mid-90s, the right assumes they have the, the vote of the evangelical church, of Joe the Christian, and the left puts out very little effort to try to tempt it to come over. I think that's generally true. Can I get us some nods out there? Okay, I got enough nods that I'm not going to get stoned later on. <clears throat> well, I think that's the situation, but I don't think that's the situation today. Today we're looking at a, at a race in a political environment where the right is not completely sure that it has the evangelical vote, and the left thinks it can get it. And so we're seeing engagement on both sides. In other words, the evangelical church has a for sale sign in its yard, as far as the vote goes. It's listening in a broader way to voices. This is the first time that I can recall where an evangelical church, Saddleback Church in California, extended an invitation and a welcome to both the right and the left to come and meet and be interviewed and questioned in an evangelical community, and both came. That's a big deal. That is a big deal. Fifteen years ago, the left wouldn't have not been invited, nor would they have come. Now they're there. This is the first time in, in the history of my recollection of politics that both conventions of politics have petitioned evangelical religious leaders to pray their benedictions at their national conventions. That is significant. That both the Republican and the Democratic National Convention would call on evangelicals to say, would you open our session in prayer? Now, I'm not fooled. I know rhetoric when I see it. I know pandering when I see it. You know it, and I know it. So I'm not trying to convince you whether this is right or wrong or the, or the high-mindedness or low-mindedness that exists. What I'm telling you is they sense that the evangelical vote is up for sale. And it is in large part. We're seeing it. If you read the articles or pay attention, talk to, read Christianity Today, there's, the places that are concerned about evangelical vote, they are noticing that there is a movement to the left. At the very least, there's a movement towards the center, but there isn't a movement to the left that's significant enough to talk about. And so that's what we're going to talk about this morning. We're going to, we're going to deal with it around the issue of life because that's where I think so much of the evangelical mind and spirit lives is this issue of life. We're going to wrestle with how do we understand why is there this shift? What can we learn? Because when, when God-believing, Christ-loving, Bible-reading Christians walk left, I have to ask, why? When they leave what, what used to be considered the safe home and they start to open up, we, we as a church need to listen to what is the truth over there that's speaking? Is it truth? So that's what we're going to do. Will you pray with me? I think I'm leaving the tunnel, by the way. Father, we give you this time. Lord, we know that you are neither right nor left. You are sinner. Lord, you are not Democrat, you are not Republican, you are God, you are almighty God, creator of the heaven and earth. Lord, the, the earth is in your balance. And so we pray, Lord, that even when we notice what man does, Lord, we would think about you and about the way you would interact. Lord, and we might be learners, learners of what's around us, for your sake and for your glory. In Jesus' name.
Amen. Okay, what I'm going to do is I'm going to talk a little bit about what's right about the right, what's right about the left, what's wrong about the right, and what's wrong about the left, and that kind of thing. This is what's right about the right. This is what they have, is with the issue of life, this is what the right has had right. For, lack of, for all the mistakes that are going on, with the issue of unborn life, the right has consistently upheld the idea that the fetus is a human. And that is scriptural, theologically true, it's of the Lord, and it should be affirmed by all his children. For whatever else is going on, why they say it, if they're saying it to get your vote, I don't care why they're saying it, the theology that fuels the position of the pro-life stance for the unborn child is godly, and it's theologically true, and it submits itself to a higher authority. They don't say it's life because they've done a test. Ultimately, the evangelical right says the unborn child is alive because God says it is. Because when, we, when the child was unknown to the mother, God was at work. That God has been knitting this child. And when we deny that, when we say that the child is, a, is an object that we can do with what we want, we are suggesting that we and not the Almighty Father are the source of life. Do you think God gives us children for us? Our children are for the Lord. Isn't that what you pray over your children, that they might be children of the Lord? Doesn't Christ say, who is my mother and father? I would pray that our children would rise up to have an allegiance first to God, to the two parents. We are not the source of their life, and we are not the source of their life even once they're outside the womb. And so this, the right is correct. The right is right that the unborn child is a cherished work of God. God is working and he is knitting in the womb. And which one of us would presume to interrupt the handiwork of God? How dare we? So that's one of the major reasons why the evangelical vote has sat in the right for so long. It's because it's, it's theologically correct. The left on this issue has approached it from a different angle. They don't argue theology, which is why it's oftentimes difficult if you have a conversation with um, someone who doesn't have a pro-life stance is they don't come to you with scripture. They approach it at a different level. Remember I said our ideology fuels our politics or our ideology fuels our sociology. We argue from an ideological, theological premise. There's an authority outside of humanity that has spoken on this issue. That's how we... That's how the evangelical community views the unborn child. It's unborn, it is valuable and, and precious to God because God has said it is. That's it. That's the issue. Now, on the sociological side, the left approaches it with sociology, which says we observe the data around us. We're looking at the issues and, and, and the life of the woman and the context she's in and the circumstances behind it, and we look at the data that we can see. So we observe, what's, uh, how was it that she became pregnant? What is her setting? What is her socioeconomic ability to take care of this child? Will she love this child when it comes out? Does she need to be dealing with this at this age in her life? I'm not saying that those are not compassionate questions to ask, but they are not questions that push above the human mind. They don't reach up and ask the Lord, what is the truth? They are contextual, they are sociological, and they're humanist. 
It's secular humanism at its best. It's saying, let us care for the human with human minds. Let us use our minds to grasp this issue. And so it presumes to try to understand the whole situation. Someone who's pro-choice, a thoughtful pro-choice individual would say that if the individual in question, if the, if the pregnant woman is convicted that the fetus inside of her is a human being, then she should not get an abortion because she would be, uh, she would be going against her convictions. But do you see the difference there? The difference there is that the whole belief mechanism stops at the individual. If that is her belief, then therefore that's how we should behave. We acknowledge that God is above politics. God is above our human society, and God speaks into the world and says, this is life. It isn't a subject of opinion. It isn't available. So that's how the right and the left have interacted on that issue, and that is, by and large, why the evangelical vote has sat for so long on the right. Proverbs 3 says this. My son, do not forget my teaching, but keep my commands in your heart. For they will prolong your life many years and bring you prosperity. Let love and faithfulness never leave you. Bind them around your neck, write them on the tablet of your heart, then you will win favor and a good name in the sight of God and man. And then the writer says this, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your what? On your own understanding. Acknowledge him in all your ways and he will make your path straight. The writer is saying that our own understanding, our human sociology is failed and godless. When you and I in our own context try to figure out the best way of life, we will make mistakes. Trust in the Lord. If God says it, trust. Obedience, when you don't understand, is the finest act of faith you can show God. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. Psalm 118, or 119, excuse me, is the longest psalm in the book of the Psalms. It's pages long. And a whole of it, about the entirety of it, is about cherishing the commands of God. I'll read you the first couple of verses. Blessed are those whose ways are blameless, who walk according to the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his statutes and seek him with all their heart. They do nothing wrong. They walk in his ways. You have laid down precepts that are to be fully obeyed. Oh, that my ways were steadfast in obeying your decrees. Then I would not be put to shame when I consider all your commands. I will praise you with an upright heart as I learn your righteous laws. I will obey your decrees. Do not utterly forsake me. If you go through Psalm 119, it's broken up into about 24 sections. This is how they begin. Section 2, how could a young man keep his way pure? By living according to your word. Section 3, do good to your servant and I will live. I will obey your word. Section 4, I am laid low in the dust. Preserve my life according to your word. Teach me your decrees. Section 5, teach me, O Lord, to follow your decrees. When we arrive at a place in the political life where God has given us a teaching, ought we not to embrace it? How hard is it to live life as it is? How confusing is it to figure out how to raise our children? Shouldn't we 
Shouldn't we hold on to the times when we know that God has spoken? That's why the evangelical vote has sat in the right for so long. It's because it's difficult to let go of that. So why is it moving now? Why is the vote moving? Well, I have a guess. Not a lot of people have written a lot of smart things about it yet because it's happening. We're among it. But here's my guess. I think it's a pretty good guess, and it's two reasons. The first reason is, is that the left acknowledges, and rightly so, that the life of the unborn child is not the only issue of life that matters. Let me say that again. The life of the unborn child is not the only issue of life that matters. So while they may have it wrong on the unborn life, they see poverty as an issue of life. While they may have it wrong on unborn life, they see that the urban oppression that is existing 20 minutes down the street is an issue of life. The disparity, the disparity of their opportunity that's found in places of less advantage is an issue of life. The fact that we discount shop on the shoulders of other nations is an issue of life. And they care. I don't know how much they really care. I'm not worried about the rhetoric. I'm saying the reason that evangelicals, particularly young evangelicals, are looking at the left, the reason there's a for sale sign and the church, is that while the right may be correct about life on that issue, the left seems to care about life. Now, you may disagree with me on whether they really do. You may disagree with me on whether the right does or doesn't. I'm, I'm not here to argue that. I'm simply saying what's being seen, why people think there's migration, and why we ought to pay attention. Because it seems like the left cares about life in a unique and profound way. Isaiah 58 writes this. And I know this is, this is not fun to s- preach. But I'm convicted that we need to hear it. This is, this is what Isaiah 58 writes. He's writing in Isaiah, and you can turn to it. I'll give you time if you'd like to. As you're turning there, Isaiah is a pr- the people have approached Isaiah, and they're wondering why, since they have fasted and prayed, the Lord has not answered them. It's the people of God they're saying, we've got, Isaiah, we've gone to the Lord, we've fasted and we've prayed, and yet he has not heard our cry. Why is that? And in Isaiah 58, Isaiah and the Lord have answered. Uh, answer. And I'll begin in verse 3. And I think I'll read to the middle of verse 9. This is the people. Why have we fasted, they say? And you have not seen it, speaking to the Lord. Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed This is the Lord. Yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please and exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Is this the kind of fast I have chosen? Only a day for a man to humble himself? Is it the only for bowing one's head like a reed, for lying in sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast? A day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the kind of fasting that I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free, to break every yoke? Is it not shared food with your hunger, the hungry 
or to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe him and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? Then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and he will say, here I am. Paul writes it this way in 1 Corinthians. He says, if I speak with the tongues of men and angels and have not love, I am but a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have all prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and knowledge and if I have the faith that can move mountains and yet have not love, I am nothing. That's what Paul writes. And so the evangelical vote, whether it goes right or left, is stuck as long as you and I live in the political world that man is telling us about. This low world of right and left, you and I are stuck in the middle. We're stuck in a way of knowing what is right in one hand and what cares in the other. We're stuck between truth and love. That's what's pooling at the evangelical community today. And I'm here to say that that is of Satan. The devise of Satan is to convince you that you have to live and think and behave in that world. Why do we have to choose? What about our life is forcing us to choose between the one or the other? Clearly, one without the other is wrong. It is, it is unfaithful to us, to the Lord, to have compassion without obedience. At its worst, that becomes pure idolatry. It becomes man worship. And it is equally untenable for us to be righteous and true without love. That is the height of hypocrisy. God is saying you must be true and obedient and you must love life. Not just the unborn life, but the born life. Not just the, what's in the womb of the mother, but the mother. You must love everything about life. We are trying to grow to love life as Christ loves life. To give ourselves up for it. Paul writes, one of my favorite writings of his is, I fill up, he writes, I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regards to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, the church. We are supposed to fill up in our flesh what is lacking in the world. To petition the world for true life. It is not one or the other. And I think Satan would have us believe that we have to choose. Satan would have you believe that you could be a great Christian simply because you walk in a booth and you vote for unborn life. Does that seem like an act of righteousness if that's it? The people in Isaiah 58, they go to the Lord, did we not pray? Did we not fast? Did we not call upon your name? And the Lord turns to them and goes, your praying and your fasting are not acts of righteousness. They are acts of unrighteousness because you have not loved the poor or the needy. We cannot simply vote and be righteous. Likewise, we cannot simply love, you cannot love humanity the way humanity needs to be loved without loving God first. You cannot call the world into Christ if you refuse to follow Christ. We need obedience and love. We need to have a more holistic view of life. And I'm calling us to be pro-lifeists have pro-lifeism pour out of us. Not just about unborn, but about born, about the needy, 
about those who need care. That's what we're called to. Last week, we declared our independence from the United States with regards to the political process. We said we don't have to follow their rules. We certainly don't have to limit ourselves, limit our Christian lives to what the, the, what the politics say we can and we can't do. I think on the issues of life, we need to do that more so than almost any, to say we will obey God and we will care. Amen.